Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. I'm Nico, and we'll be bumping smooth jazz all through the night. So, I just want to put this out there. This is being recorded in a period of time in which nearly every single one of us has had some kind of terrible sickness at one point or another. So, this is on the heels of an episode where Kevo and I could barely speak. Jonah, being such a trooper, surviving through all this. Thank you so much. And Dylan, it must be so hard out for you in Chicagoland where all the wind is. Stop telling everyone I live in Chicago when I don't. I'll give them your real address. I'll give them their real address and they'll show up at your door. As long as they have gifts, I'm fine. This is true. I am always open to a serial killer bearing gifts. Now, speaking of serial killers, this read list almost killed me. I don't understand the Micronauts. We have already covered this issue of the Micronauts, issue number 37, which we will be discussing prior to taking a look at X-Men versus the Micronauts 1 through 4 by Chris Claremont, Belmantlo, and Butch Juice, or Guse, or Geis. His name is Butch Geis. Is this Beetlejuice? Did Beetlejuice draw this? So this story is by Chris Claremont and Bill Mantlo and Beetlejuice. And it's, I, I don't even know what to say. Like, this was bad. Just bad. Jonah, you and I have already covered Micronauts number 37. Did you find yourself micro-sighted to go back to this micro-adventure featuring Microcrawler? Not in the slightest. Is that what got you sick? Yes, I am currently sick while recording this because I had to read such terrible issues and it caused me to fall suddenly ill. You know, like back in the old times when things made everybody ill? Like, Oh no, she has consumption. Yeah, she's really consumpted right now. She is <laughs> consumpting all over the place. And then if I were a woman, my treatment would be an orgasm. And if I was a man, my treatment would be whiskey. So unfortunately, I had to pick either or. I didn't get well, both. I need to take a step back. I think the mistake is that they didn't start inducing anal orgasms for men to relieve their tension. Think of the numbers of wars we could have avoided if world leaders were just like, yeah, bang on my prostate for a minute. Get, me, get, the, get the crazy out of me. So Jonah, Jonah, have you tried that? That might help. <laughs> so everybody, welcome back to Loveline with Dr. Drew. I'm your host, Nico, because nobody on Fox News here. But anyway, Jonah, this was the return to the Micronauts, and the cover even says, guest starring the uncanny Nightcrawler. You must have been so excited to get to read this again, and you've already said how excited you were that your body shut down in response. So... Talk to me about returning to the Micronauts. This issue actually taught me a little bit more about the Micronauts than I thought I would ever care to learn slash be forced upon reading. (laughs) 
they're actually toys within Marvel, the Marvel comic verse, which I think is the most bizarre, weird, dumb, I'm sorry, it's dumb, um, lore that involves them. I knew that they were an actual toy line. I didn't realize that they were a toy line within the actual universe. That just kind of sullied everything for me. And I do understand that because one of the things about the Micronauts is that they genuinely were created around the toy line. It's another one of those examples of a comic that was based on a product. So I I really do hear what you're saying where you're like, I don't want to insult any of the creators. You know, poor Bill Mantlo. I like want to give this guy an award because we just kind of go at his work a little bit too hard. But I feel like so frequently Bill Mantlo's work kind of like reeks of editorial interference where I don't know that this guy ever got to actually write his own story. Micronauts very much feels like it was meant to promote a toilet. It really was. And I don't want to be... Uh, like crappy on these characters but i feel like micronauts and the microverse are not that exciting it's basically an space adventure group not set in space but actually set in like it's in space and i would rather read guardians of the galaxy star jammers nova carol anything else involving a space adventure crew than the micronauts Dylan, was this your first experience with the Micronauts, the Microverse, and micro-interest in this story? It actually wasn't. When I was younger, my grandparents used to like to go to auctions a lot, and they would just buy boxes of stuff. Like, I swear they weren't hoarders, but they would just get boxes of stuff, and sometimes they would get boxes of comics, and there were comics that were not very good comics. And I swear I probably, me and my older brother, we probably almost had every single Micronauts comic, because it is a crappy comic that no one would ever want to keep. And I remember reading them, and I completely agree with Jonah. I These characters could have very easily been placed in actual space and have way better adventures. Just by staring or staring, God, I don't want to stare at them any more than I have to. (laughs) By looking at them, you can just tell that they were made after like what would look like a cool toy and let's make that into a character and like make none of these characters look like they are the same species or human or robot or tar monster. I don't care for the Micronauts and I actually (laughs) didn't really know that there was a little mini series until we needed to read this. Like, I knew the Micronauts were a part of the Marvel Universe, but I didn't know that the X-Men were subjected to a four-issue miniseries with them, and it's really sad. I really enjoy your use of subjected, because I don't disagree with kind of treating it as maybe a little bit forced upon them, because it really does feel that way. Now, the Micronauts weren't just a toy. The Micronauts were a toy that Marvel only had the license on for so long. Marvel held the license on the characters from 19 1979 until the late 80s or so. In the late 90s, the characters Marionette, Arctus Ran, and Bug would appear other places throughout Marvel because they were created for Marvel instead of for the toy line, which would lead to things like Bug appearing in Guardians of the Galaxy at one time. But essentially, they would have to hide the Micronauts label. And one of the things is that Marvel doesn't like to promote characters they can't backstory the shit out of. So if they can't hammer you with thousands of old issues or thousands of new issues, they're not really interested in pushing the character. So you're already saying that you wouldn't be able to use these characters' previous adventures, they're off-limits, because those adventures are no longer licensed to Marvel. 
So you'd have to create whole new backstories. And I'm sorry, but did anybody feel that Marionette, Arcaturus Ran, or Bug were just so fucking great you can't do better? Well, we can. <laughs> and unfortunately, they didn't. I blame Chris on this one. Front of the pod, Chris Claremont, that he has to shove in people's backstories into their issues. Well, you know, before we can get into that, I do want to say that the... I forgot what that fucking... My, I'm like, they're not the Space Knights. What the fuck are these idiots? Okay. Uh, I do want to point out that the Micronauts <laughs> would go on to have significant trouble keeping a home, right? They would go to Image Comics in June of 2002. They would run less than 12 issues and be canceled in late 2003. They also got a miniseries featuring, oh god, Baron Karza. How grateful are we that they spent so much time putting Kitty in this guy's... Bu- I just, I hated this. Anyway, Devil's Due Publishing ran a new series, and then IDW carried it. And what's even more interesting is IDW also got the ROM The Space Knight license at the same time. So ROM is another character where Marvel's like, it's hard to erase those stories from our pantheon. No matter what, they did face the Dire Wraiths. And the Dire Wraiths remain a Forge enemy, even though they belong to Space Knights. So this is a miniseries that Marvel isn't eager to take credit for anytime soon. Jonah, let's give Dylan a little tour through Micronauts 37. Beyond the fact that it introduced us to a number of these characters. Okay, Jonah, when we read this, I'm pretty sure we made fun of Hunter for a good 10 minutes. Like, we we just kept judging Hunter the mutant. Well, hold on. He's not a mutant. You're right. I'm sorry. Hunter the grotesque Micronaut monster man. Yeah, there, there you go. But at that point... It... Yeah, he was a bad guy. And now in Micronauts numbers 1 through 4, he's a fuck! He's a good guy! No! We're also missing a Micronaut. I literally didn't notice. Who's missing? The red one that looks like Beast. <laughs> oh, um, Devil. Yeah, Devil. He's no longer with them, but now we have Huntar and Fireflight. And here's the thing. Huntar is exactly, the, like, Devil is like, I can't believe that once upon a time I wanted to fight the Micronauts, and now I'm a Micronaut! And, like, then we get Huntar, and he's like, I used to fight the Micronauts, and now I'm a Micronaut. And we've got, what is his name? Baron Mordo, who's like, now you have to work with me. And they're like, I can't believe we have to work with Baron Fuckhead. And Baron Fuckhead's like, believe it, bitch. And like, because he's a bad guy, so he calls women bitches. And so then, when he switches bodies with Kitty Pride, he does not act like a very good guy. So I'm not convinced he's a good guy. It doesn't work for me. I'm not in for this. I don't want it. Oh my god. So X-Men versus the Micronauts 1 through 4. I want to talk about this a little out of order. I, I want to get something out of the way. This was the rapiest Xavier has ever been in a direct way. Yes, it was extremely 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 uncomfortable oh my goodness i i don't know what was going on when this was allowed to be written it is so overt and two with two minor characters not minor as in their status minor as in their age i don't disagree especially when there's panels previously before it happening that he's like talking to danny about how you guys are just at an age where your bodies are changing and blah blah no 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 
Well, and like, there's even little subtle things in it that make me so uncomfortable. In the penultimate page of issue three, Sam is just like full on lounging around in sleep pants, looking all kinds of jacked and like, genuinely, he's half naked. And the only reason I'm phrasing it as he's half naked is because he is 17 and Rain is 14. And they are at very different places physically, developmentally, emotionally, developmentally, and mentally, developmentally. Oh, guess that's, that's a fun way to say that. So I do feel like this is just like unusually sexual in a lot of ways and then for the second page of that final issue that sequence where the entity as Xavier what's the dialogue exactly Danielle Moonstar wakes then with a start and screams as psychic fingertips play a sensual caress across her very soul she does not scream long however before she collapses to the carpet in the throes of indescribable pleasure Xavier says like that did you child and she says yes and he he says, well then, if you're a good little girl and aid me in dominating the new mutants as easily as I dominated Xavier and his X-Men, I will reward you with more of the same. I don't, I think we're on a list now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, unfortunately. This is. I understand that discussing this put us on the list, but I want to make it very clear. <laughs> I reject this and all of its works. This was so strange because I also felt like there was no actual main character on the part of the X-Men. So many of the X-Women in particular the young women, whether it was Kitty or Danny, existed almost exclusively to be exploited in some way, whether it was physical or mental. And I found so much of the X-Men's use was as, like, fuck puppets. Yeah, I agree. There was a, a whole lot of, like, Danny and Kitty in their pajamas for no reason or bikinis or whatever. And it, it was just all sorts of creepy to go back a page and to go back to the kind of the beginning what wasn't creepy was sort of silly I kept assuming that when the Micronauts appeared in this like the X-Men would either be shrunk to Micronaut size immediately or the Micronauts would be grown to X-Men size immediately and so instead there's that couple of pages where Wolverine is fighting an action figure size barren clumsy face and he's like oh the little guy hurt me so bad and then like it just it's it's really silly because in a lot of ways it looks like the X-Men are being defeated by a samurai armor clad Stuart Little, and I don't find myself terribly afraid of that. I have to agree with something that you said, Nico, in that there didn't feel like a main character for the X-Men. There also didn't really feel like there was a main character for the Micronauts either. The only person who really got a, like, important part, I guess you can argue, maybe, is... Firefly, uh, Fireflight, I'm sorry, Fireflight, and, or the Bioship, who I thought said Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) It's something that I discussed with with you, Nico, about this, is that this entire arc, this four-part miniseries, was so confusing, there were way too many things going on, and it felt like one after the another, And it only gets resolved in the last issue, like, everything all at once. And I don't want to say that Chris Claremont can't write other characters, but it also just felt like the Micronauts didn't have enough of their own voice, so he kind of just filled in with what he knew. Because I will say this, I'm pretty sure Fireflight was a stand-in for Polaris. There were definitely some moments where I thought to myself, I don't know who the Micronauts are from this, I wouldn't know who the X-Men are, from reading this and I don't I didn't know who this was for exactly if this was for X-Men fans or for Micronaut fans this was at a really interesting time in X-Men we've talked a little bit about how right around when the 
this came out was the Ileana miniseries, not too long before this was God Loves, Man Kills. The X-Men were moving in some aggressively darker places, so this was sort of fitting. But this doesn't pull together the best parts of these characters. Something I've always maintained is that the Asgardian Wars story, that Alpha Flight X-Men two-parter, plus the New Mutants X-Men Asgardian two-parter, that like four issues, it's like 200-something pages because everything's triple-sized, right? That works so well. Because it really does use Alpha Flight and the X-Men, even if it doesn't further anyone's stories in major ways, it utilizes those characters. I don't feel like most of the characters got any sort of resolution to their stories. Everybody just got back together. And the ending of it was even sort of like, and the adventure continues. No, it didn't finish. I want I want a resolution. <laughs> now, Dylan, since you inexplicably come with a bizarre amount of Micronauts back knowledge, by that I mean you have any, did... Were, I I don't were these have you have you character before? Did they read be good word good now? Word picture not good now. That what me thought. That what me thought. <laughs> Knowing the little bit that I know about the Micronauts, except I really do not remember that issue thirty seven that had something to do with the X Men. I can't say that I definitely know all of the Micronaut history, but I know who they are. I know the I knew who these characters were before reading this. If I just read this and didn't know know anything about them or didn't know anything about the X-Men, I would still be very confused on who any of these characters were. I What you were just saying about this not being a good story for X-Men, not a good story for Micronauts, or like Jonas said, they're not really being a standout character for either one of the teams. This just seems like a jumbled mess of hey, the X-Men are really popular right now, and then there's this really weird book that we have called Micronauts. Let's see if we can have a story with the two teams and if people will buy it. I know something that is a story that we will be covering sometime soon of X-Men and Teen Titans. I feel like it was just like, hey, let's just have a bunch of teams mixed together and see what kind of hype or money we can make from this. And that is really what it comes down to for me. I can almost imagine the pitch meeting. Mantlo and Claremont are hanging out in the office. And I can almost imagine that, you know, Bill Mantlo was like, oh, Micronauts, it's got a strong fan base. The sales aren't there. The editors are saying if we could find a way to help rally it. And I can even believe Chris was like, I've got a story that I would never do in X-Men. But if it helps Micronauts and it's this weird other thing, I have this idea for an evil Xavier tale. So that puts us in a position to talk about, I think, the only true star of this story. The Entity and Evil Xavier. Now, fans of the animated series might recognize the Entity and the Evil Xavier story as one of the most memorable parts of the Phoenix Saga. Most parts of the animated series Phoenix Saga do correlate to Claremont Byrne or Claremont Cockrum era stories. The Juggernaut Black Tom material, along with Lalandra, refers to the early days of Claremont and Cockrum, as well as the later story elements being decently close to the latticework story. But this Dark Xavier bit, where, you know, Jubilee is like, Oh no! the professor's being weird and xavier's like i'm being weird and then you know logan's like that ain't charlie i can't smell him and he's walking and then gambit comes in and he's like Gambit and and then rogue is like shit exactly. sugar. shit sugar shit sugar 
and Beast comes in and he's like, oh, my stars and garters and pantyhose and I'm into that now and no one can kink shame me. It's a modern Krakoa. So, oh, I think- Wait, 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 wait. We forgot Storm and then Storm came in and had a five minute speech about how she's the goddess until of the, the weather with the monorail. wins. <laughs> I will defeat you at the monorail. <laughs> I will blow a tempest. She really does say, "I will defeat you with the monorail." It really is. So sad. This is way more interesting than these four issues. Okay, so I want to touch on it. Dark Xavier represents something that I feel like the X Men have been threatening since day one. What if Xavier's great mental powers were used for evil in the same way they have been teasing us with what if Magneto's great magnetic powers were used for good? Xavier finally going a little bit batshit here, kind of sets the stage for Legion in some ways. It kind of touches back on Proteus in some ways. But more than anything, I find it fascinating that once Marvel had the opportunity to retell a Dark Xavier story, they did. Now, the Muir Island saga does seem like it's going to be a Dark Xavier story, but it's ultimately not. Onslaught, at its heart, is a Dark Xavier story. The entity, in many ways, paves the way for Onslaught ten years later. The idea that Xavier could be the greatest threat facing the X-Men all along is something that I feel like never really does get truly realized, because they just aren't gonna do that. Like, I'm not trying to call anybody out on anything, but they like to tell us that Xavier's a creep, they like to tell us that he's done shitty things, but I genuinely don't think that anytime soon, Xavier's gonna go full-on fucking Hal Jordan Parallax. I just don't see that happening. So this is kind of the closest we get, and it's such a toned-down version of the reality of the threat. Jonah, you have just read, like, 200, 300-something issues of X-Men, in which the potentiality of the threat of Xavier raining hell upon his students is made as clear an apocalyptic omen as any other potential threat in the universe. How did it feel finally seeing that pay off and then seeing it ultimately resolve down to he creeped on some little girls and then got beaten real quick? And, okay, something I want to talk about with this, I want to bring us quick to a video game, Persona 4. Part of the game is people confronting their shadows and the parts of their psyche that they don't want to talk about, and a lot of it also deals with perception of how how people view you and how that affects who you are. I'm bringing this up because the entity is similar to a shadow of Charles. That being said, like, these feel like the weird, like, dark inner feelings of Charles, and it's just so, I don't know, like, creepy, weird, like, this is actual Charles, this is part of his psyche, part of that means that's what he, that's how he views some of his students, it's really gross, I, 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 this book didn't need to be sexualized in any way whatsoever, like, and, and if you were going to go that route, why Danny, why Kitty, why not, uh, granted it wouldn't make it better, but why not Marionette, you know, an adult woman, or, or just something along those lines, it's just, it, it just, it bothered me so much. Especially because the innocence of these characters has to be sanctified and protected for the sake of forever extrapolating 
making stories from it. The moment you take away a character's innocence, the moment you change that character via story, you no longer have that option to go back. So it kind of seems to me like he rushed into a more mature story for the sake of doing so without really thinking about how that was going to long-term affect his storytelling options. I I know it's going to come to the point where it's going to happen more frequently, but why did this book, why did this set, this arc, have like a shit ton of body swaps? Because that's Claremont's quick go-to that violates people on a fundamental level without having to genuinely rape them. Uh, But, uh, there was Kitty and the Baron, and then Charles at his inner demon psyche person. There was also Bug becoming an actual Bug. Uh, There was so much body, weird body horror that... uh, I just like that's part of what my confusion is there's so much going on please listeners do yourself a favor don't go out and search for this don't try to find it don't read this it is <laughs> no so... just no 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 it is it's uh, yeah uh, end, of, end of my rant <laughs> so that actually does bring me to one of the most interesting things about this story. This is one of the only X-Men stories not collected. As a matter of fact, when I realized that this story is not in any trade, it is not available on any digital service, and I had to use my physical paper copies that I was lucky enough to have, it made me start to question just how many X-Men stories have been pulled from canon at this point. There are X-Men stories which sure, don't squarely take place in the Marvel Universe. Especially throughout the 90s, there was a lot of intercompany crossover with things like Witchblade and Painkiller Jane. Shy. A lot of these characters would appear in Marvel crossovers with DC at Image, and it was a great way to promote titles. But those were always treated as kind of out of canon. I believe this might be the first story we are organically coming to that is stricken from canon. And we all know why or at least the three of us do (laughs) and what i think is really crazy about that is jonah i know you won't have too much experience with them but dylan are you familiar with the alan davis creation clandestine clandestine was the project that alan davis would leave excalibur for in the 1990s creating the team for marvel comics presents 159 before ultimately giving them their own title he would write eight issues of the book and then leave he would immediately be seceded by a new writer well when alan davis got his hands on the characters again for an X-Men clandestine crossover, he decided those issues never took place. As a matter of fact, the second arc of Clandestine has never ever been collected, and the only reference to it outside of its own pages are a couple of lines at the beginning of X-Men Clandestine that refers to them as a bad dream. The book then resumes (laughs) as though Alan Davis had never left. So, Marvel has dropped stuff from canon before, but man, this one is... A a rather glaring omission. I can't imagine how Danny and Xavier never need to talk about her, I don't know, being psychically raped by him. I think it's strange that Kitty Pryde doesn't talk about getting body swapped with a force of nature micro monster ever again. And, um, did, this is gonna sound so weird, did Lockheed seem out of character to everyone else? (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) 
Lockheed, the star of the show and the hero that we deserved. He was so out of character. I, I felt like the Lockheed I know would be like, um, guys, there's somebody else in Kitty. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a dragon. Fire, fire, flap, flap. There's someone else in Kitty. Yeah, no, instead he was just attack first. Surprisingly overpowered. Other Charles couldn't hurt him, psychically talk to him. Like, there's literally Charles couldn't do anything to him. But then this Charles can psychically talk to him right away and is like, aw, did you protect Ileana because she's friends with Kitty? Then why didn't you protect anyone else in the X-Men, you dumb short-sighted dragon? You dumb short bitch. Right? You purple bastard. No one wants you. Go back to space. Go back to space. Or come to me. I'd like to have a purple dragon. And now everybody's got Shogo and Lockheed to choose from. Oh, and Van Weeden. The X-Men are just drowning in pet dragons these days. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. One of the coolest things about this show is getting to have people on that have some experience with X-Men, a lot of experience with X-Men, but you know, what's really more fun is having people on that have a lot of experience with me and X-Men. Here with me today is one of my best friends in the entire universe ever. Everybody, welcome Maddie to the show. Hey everybody, glad to be here. First time guest, long time listener, first time guest. Wow, that's a really, I like that. Long time listener, first time guest, lowest voice on the network. I will progressively get lower softer. Ooh, I like this smooth jazz thing we're going for. That's that's very in line with what we're doing today. We're recording this in the middle of the afternoon, but it's also dark like night out because thank you, January. So I will be progressively working my way towards like 4 a.m. ride home from work. So as we slowly succumb to the sad, I want to talk to you a little bit about your experiences with the X-Men. Now, I gotta be honest, some of your experience was with the X-Men. I guess I've never been more aware of how much lower your voice is than mine right now, but so the most amazing thing about your experience with the X-Men is some of the books you read were at one point my book. Pretty much every book that I read <laughs> was either at one time your book or gifted to me by you. So yeah, I know both X and you through you. Well, I love hearing that. I love getting to be the X in the Library of Alexandria that is the lexicon of your book knowledge. You are the liaison X. Oh, I love it. Oh. You're the liaison X. You, I... are, you are Onyx as a hotel concierge and Kyrie Eleison that's all we play in the lobby Kyrie Eleison yeah can I tell you that came on a work Christmas playlist oh no it didn't we're not even gonna get into that wait is that are we talking about that Kyrie Eleison yeah in in its entirety no (laughs) no I I work 12 hour bar shifts and some chaotic neutral put a old timey mixed Christmas playlist on and then just left with no ability to change it. So it was Hallelujah Chorus. It was Kyrie Eleison. It was really Murder House instead of Winter Skarsgård kind of vibe. Okay, uh, okay. Christmas, yeah, yeah. so. So on the first day of Lars von Trier, my, <laughs> I just want to be sure that we, uh, I just want to be sure that we're on the same page. Now, I know you have some other non-X-Men comic book experience. I feel like you at one point were kind of like a Batmat for a little bit. I, I was, I was at one point mired in the white pain Batman family, proving that inclusivity is sometimes a double-edged sword. The Wokening is one of those experiences that you never 
really want. You never want that experience of oh, like, ah, everything I've ever thought is wrong and I'm the worst. But like you, you get through it and you realize that what matters is doing good from here on out. And hey, there are tons of amazing either black bat characters, queer bat characters, oh, trans bat characters. For sure. Not all bat properties are created equal by that measure. But, you know, at some point you just turn around and you start reading Daredevil. And yeah. better runs of Daredevil. And very Mark Wade runs of Daredevil. Give me a bright Daredevil. Bright, shiny Daredevil with bright, all that beautiful Samney art. Beautiful Samney art. Beautiful Paolo Rivera art. Beautiful, weird, strange echoes of Claw. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful book. But hey, Daredevil's not a mutant. Do you know who are? Um, the... Oh, Doom Patrol. Oh, Doom exactly. Patrol are mutants that are 100%. led by a guy in a wheelchair. The, the, the wheelchair guy, but a different wheelchair guy. But really, are they? I mean, they've never been in the same place at the same time. That is exactly the rationale I use to prove I am Glenn Close. And to be fair, my turn in Sunset Boulevard also hasn't won a Tony. So if ever there were a justification for anything, it is exactly that. You know, I really came into comics, as I've mentioned through you, of course, through primarily trades and hand-me-downs. So a lot of that didn't leave me with a lot of reference. It left me with a lot of history and a lot of content, you know, a number of trades that you gave me that I wholeheartedly consumed, but maybe didn't digest until after they became a part of the greater social consciousness. I think I can really understand what you're saying i i hear so many people say the same thing to me that there was a limited encyclopedic volume series that referenced an unlimited encyclopedic knowledge of events you could only ever get your hands on this smattering and it gave you a very specific reference in that reference kind of shapes what you come to understand about the x-men to go back to your bat book comment if i've only ever read which i only ever have batman trades if i've only ever read batman collections if i've only ever read Long Halloween, and if I've only ever read Hush, then sure, I understand the rogues gallery of characters by face, but I don't understand the content. So a lot of my ex-experience is just the same. I've read Batman books, but I've never read Detective Comics. Interesting! With that, I read so many, and it wasn't until New X-Men that I read a book that actually bore the X title, the, the proper X title, with the, the qualification that it is new, and this is what you should, and everybody looked a little bit more uniform and this had come after I'd seen the Fox trilogy of films so instead of getting that that understated X quality but really over leathered costume quality of a uniform series look well now I have the yellow and black X bombers I mean how Zorn wore one against an X of chains on his chest if that doesn't scream to a to an adolescent, an early adolescent boy, this is what you want to read if you're a weird comic dude. If you want to be a weirdo comic dude, weird dude. Here, let's help you get into bondage. Yeah, pretty much. Do you want to be a varsity athlete? Do you also maybe want to get into bondage? You don't know. We're here to help. We just want to give you completely unrealistic body goals. Just, you want to be Wolverine, but not five foot four. You want to be Magneto, but not somewhere between 55 and 104 years old. Okay, that's comics for you. But what about X-Men in particular? 
when you think X-Men, what is your go-to version of the X-Men? Do you think a certain comic era? Are you like animated series out the ass? Or do you live a life of quiet uncannitude? I'm admittedly as a very moderate, not even moderate, as a very recently successive reader, I suppose. I'm very wrapped up in, as we all are, the house powers and dawn. Hox pox docs, five times fast. But I immediately go X-Men animated series because I'm a product of my upbringing. But otherwise, I think back to probably Dark Phoenix and Inferno, just as earliest introduction. But man, if I haven't heard that and seen that redone and reread a million times, so maybe it's just, I just dream of Genie. I just dream of Dark Phoenixy Genie. So I want to double check that you're saying that you think about Hawks and Pox and Docs, and sometimes you think about Toss on Fox. Yuck. Okay, but here's the thing. What is it about the animated series that keeps you coming back? You know, I think I might be the only person for whom the animated series does not contain that same sense of emotional connection. I don't know if it's that I started with the comics and I was like, this, this, no, no, this Kalisto wouldn't kill a child. I don't believe that. So maybe it's that, but what brings you back? Especially now living in a post Disney Plus release world, what really brings me back to it is not remembering it. Does that make sense? I feel like I remember the imagery of it. I remember the theme song of it. I remember it as my earliest tangible introduction to these characters as more than comic properties, but I really, up until recently, didn't remember how uneven it was. For example, I watched the Four Horsemen of Apocalypse season one arc, I think beginning maybe episode nine, and where you where, <laughs> where you see the transformation of Warren as Angel into Archangel, and I remember seeing the one woman who would be eventually famine touch a flower in the bar and have it wilt and you exactly did it in, in full mom and Sean's face it was just complete sadness and I was like well she'll obviously be famine <laughs> so, so we get Archangel and I go yes give me my other horseman and they are just variations of the same stock character with different color skins. And they still have the same motorcycle animal hybrid that inexplicably flies self-propelled through the air. And they are ex just war, famine, and pestilence. No name, just what does war do? He makes war. What is that? I don't know. I actually got confused. Like, wait, no, it's war, famine, and pieces. Wait. Famine pieces. <laughs> or famine pieces. When you can't eat a whole famine... <laughs> You need to just have portions. It's just easier to snack a handful of famine pieces. A lot of people don't like the famine pieces. I actually am a bigger fan of the chunks of pestilence. Nice, nice. See, now they're making the large famines with the pieces inside of it. And that's what the war dip is for. V very divisive. But the war dip, well, the war dip is always best if you make it yourself. I think Patty was robbed of the Tony for war dip. Oh, but my Christine. Oh, your poor Christine. My poor Christine. Everybody just overlooked her. I know that you do have a strong background in who these characters are, not just the cultural iterations. And don't get me wrong, I love the cultural iterations, whether it's Famke Jensen's Gene, or it's Sophie Turner's Gene, or it's Animated Series Gene, or it's X-Men Evolution's Gene. I really like Gene. So I appreciate other iterations, but coming into the comics in such a fractal way, you know, the best you ever had a chance to do was peer in on the comics. And the earliest point you jumped in, like most people in the trades generation, you jumped in at the Dark Phoenix Saga, and I'm pretty sure I gave that to you when you were like 12. 
Yeah, it was it was actually a birthday gift. And I remember being like, this is neat. This looks like that movie that's already come out. If I'm just going to put a very fine point on my existence in space time. But I, yeah, funny enough, I had never realized not only how to spell his name, but I'd never realized that was my earliest introduction to Bill Sienkiewicz. I did not realize that his cover art for the trades was his. Oh my God, yes, that purple cover with that. Oh, you know, it's that's such a great, you know, I gave uh, Dylan, host Dylan, I gave Dylan a set of the 93 or 94 Ultra Fleers uh, trading cards for Christmas because that was one of the first ways I ever experienced the comics and I wanted him to get to experience it the first way I ever experienced it. 50 of these are fucking Sienkiewicz! Like, it really does bleed into your consciousness these things that influence your understanding. Also, from an artistic standpoint, there's just such strong albeit undefined line work. I think immediately of the Dark Phoenix gene there just a little left of center I, I see the very strong x but the very pronounced vertical lines it's almost the way that the light breaks on the page the line work while not very stark it's so undefined it's so almost brushstroke but it's so powerful it carries this feminine strength to it almost it is very synonymous with how i look at that era i love that you were able to pull that together that's such a cool realization i fucking love that and that's how i've always looked at a lot of these books and characters you know for the most part i've excitedly talked every episode i even have gotten to the point where i make fun of my own trope of it where i'm like i know every episode i say this is the one that changes everything and for the most part I keep reviews like, this sucks so bad I'm never going to forgive my eyes. For things like Dazzler. But, no guys, this sucks so bad I'm never going to forgive my eyes. Or Chris Claremont's finger. I'm never going to forget you for making us read it. No, and I wouldn't either because like this one wasn't one that like you came across in an omnibus. I had to work to make you guys read this. And then I made you read it. Honestly, if I had known going into it what a fucking shit show this four-part miniseries was, I probably would have handled it a little bit differently. I might have attached <laughs> another episode to it because I, I work kind of hard not to let these episodes just become thrashing on our heroes or calling out bad issues for problems. And for the most part, we're able to find things we like. Even in the darkest Dazzler days, we're still able to find shreds of that decency that supports who she is. Is, but this definitely felt like a script by Mantlo based on a loose plot by Claremont that Claremont came in and did some of that very fanciful dialogue punch up he loves to do. Nobody can describe, I guess, mentally molesting a 17 year old like Chris Claremont can. I do want to add one thing that was good to go with you saying the finding one shiny thing in certain books. I will say this dude whose name we don't know how to say, Butch, Goose, Juice, whatever, and the inker and colorist on these issues, I will say the art was pretty amazing. At times, absolutely. I really agree. There were some really strong standout moments, and I feel like this team captured the idea of size dimension really well. I felt like the small figures, as silly as it was, as I pointed out, like it still felt like small people, not toys. Yeah. Like cats. Yes, this was a lot. Yes, okay. <laughs> X-Men versus the Micronauts is essentially a four-part adaptation of cats. If you just replace the word Micronauts with Jellicles, 
I think we actually have a great issue. Hold on. Wait, no, now I'm really curious. <laughs> You're welcome. No, no, no. I uh, no, I know what I did. I'm, what I'm, did. I opened that can of worms and I'm going to lay in it. So that would make this book called number one in a four issue limited series, The X-Men and the Jellicle Cats. And it would become the marvelous Jellicle Cats, starring Mr. Mistopheles and Rum Tum Tugger and um, Persian and Meowth and Mewtwo yes. and Samurai Battle Cats and Voltron. Garfield. And so then. And Kitty. And Kitty, right? So then the Jellicaverse, the celestial silence of the subatomic planetary system, is suddenly shattered by the Clarion of. Dogs. The head of this awesome armada soars a great sentient spacecraft. The living Meow Meow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Oh, wait, no. Now we're on the X-Men. That's not as much fun to change. Um. Oh, that says fringes. I thought that said we approach fitness. Well, guys, I it turns out don't think there's any saving this. And until we all slowly die in the microverse. Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men group that is called House of X, or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan, that is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find your amazingly furry face? I don't know what I'm saying. Oh, I was like, is he going to say deep voice? You can find me trying to recover from reading this book, as well as reminiscing on the best body swaps of Micronauts versus X-Men, Season 5, on <laughs> Twitter and Instagram, at Peak Jonah. That is a good old Shit's Creek joke for you. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, ladies and gentlemen, you guys can find me here in the golden hour, bumping all sorts of smooth hits, making love connections across this network. Don't forget to look us up over... I can't keep it up. It's too hard. Like, it's not even like, not even like a low, sexy voice, but like, I just so naturally go to smile when I talk. It's hard to sound sexy when you smile. So, uh, sound like Jack Nicholson like, Joker. I was about to say, it makes you sound like Beetlejuice. It makes you sound like Michael Keaton. So you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Excess for Podcast or HTML, where currently we're dissecting the Star Wars universe. Don't forget to check me out on all sorts of extra content on this network, like when I make my amazing appearances on Third Time's a Charm, or doing the theme work on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, 5678, Patty. There's another Shit's Creek joke for you. Don't forget to check <laughs> us out over at WeAreKrokoa.com, or you can look at my half-naked body, which is occasionally like three-fourths naked, over on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So, until next time, guys, as always, it is amazing having you here on our network, and we cannot wait to deep dive into better stories than this. And we'll see ya. Goodbye. Bye.